0: Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of follow him. My name is Hank Smith. I'm here with the incredible John, by the way. Hello, John. Hello, Hank. Welcome back to another episode, John. We are going to look today at first Corinthians. Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth, then was away for a few years, but got word that the Corinthians had kind of created divisions among themselves, been separated and had some contention among themselves. I feel like, John, we could get a lot out of this letter. What are you thinking?
1: I always think of that Doctrine and Covenants verse, if you're not one, you're not mine. And I always think if we're not his, the alternatives are not very good. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: We have an awesome guest and expert joining us today, John. Her name is Dr. Teresa Bell. When it comes to this letter, is there a lot for us to take out of this?
2: You know, I really think there is. I can't help but think of the recent conference talks and how there's been a lot about unity lately. And I think that's probably the main message we need to get from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And being able to to see our differences as strengths and yet be united in in purpose. Fantastic. John, this is Teresa's first time on our podcast, Dr. Bell. Can you tell us a little bit more about her?
1: Oh, I'm so excited to share with our audience about Teresa Reber Bell. She joined the faculty in the Department of German and Russian at BYU in August of 2013, she teaches principles and practices of language teaching, exploring foreign language teaching, a graduate seminar on language and culture and German language courses. She is the associate chair and president elect of the Utah Foreign Language Association, and she is the current president of the BYU Faculty Women's Association. Before coming to BYU, she was faculty member of the Department of Modern Languages, Literatures, and Linguistics at the University of Oklahoma from 2002 to 2013, and from August 2000 to April 2002, she taught German at the University of Pittsburgh. Her research focuses on native speaker perception of non-native speaker production of written and spoken German. Wow. So how do native speakers perceive those who are not native speakers in what they write and produce in German? In addition to other projects, she's writing a book on the hymn Silent Night and its perception and influence in the lives of members of the church. Or as they say in German, I remember this. Stille Nacht. Yeah, Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, and <laughs> she graduated from the interdisciplinary PhD program in second language acquisition and teaching at the University of Arizona in May 2001. She has a BA in German and math from BYU and an MA in German literature from BYU. She served in the Germany Frankfurt Mission and taught institute for two years at the University of Arizona while she was in graduate school. She's married to Ryan Bell. They have two children. One, Luke, is serving in the Bolivia Cochabamba mission. And Madeline, just graduated from high school, will be going on a Vienna study abroad and attending BYU this fall. I love introducing people because I love what I hear from our guests. They're just so amazed at the wide education that our guests have. And yet they're faithful believers. And so we're really delighted to have you with us. Dr. Bell, thanks for being with us today.
2: Thanks. I'm really happy to be here.
0: We are very happy to have you here, Teresa. And I know that you are friends with my wonderful wife, Sarah. And so she is excited (laughs) to listen to this episode. I don't know how many episodes she listens to, but I know this will be one of them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) She listens to a lot of them. We talk about them sometimes.
0: I hope so. I don't ask because I I feel like that's a little too much pressure. (laughs) I bet in all your experience with your mission and with all your education, you've never run into any sort of division or contention among people. I bet that's never.
2: Never in my entire life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Never the case. I'm going to read a little something from the Come Follow Me manual, and then we'll turn it over to you, Teresa, and see where you want to go. It opens up by saying, during the months that Paul spent in Corinth, many of the Corinthians hearing him believed and were baptized. It must have been heartbreaking for Paul to hear just a few years later that there were divisions and contentions among the Corinthian saints, and that in his absence, they began to heed the wisdom of the world. In response, Paul wrote the letter we now call 1 Corinthians. It is full of profound doctrine, and yet at the same time, Paul seems disappointed that the saints were not ready to receive all the doctrine he wanted to give them. He says, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, he lamented, for ye are yet carnal. As we prepare to read Paul's words, it might be helpful to examine our own readiness to receive truth, including our willingness to heed the Spirit and strive for unity within our families, with our fellow saints, and with God. What a great introduction. Where do you want to go with this, Teresa? How do you want to take a look at First Corinthians?
2: I'd like to start by saying that I'm really happy to join both of you, Hank and John, who are united together to help us better understand the Come Follow Me curriculum. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about the historical and geographical context for the city of Corinth because I think it's kind of important to understand before we dive into the epistles, and then a little context for Paul's epistles in general. And you may have covered some of this already talking about Acts and Roman, and it's okay. It's good to hear it again sometimes.
0: Okay, totally fine. Yeah. So, repetition is a good thing,
2: right? Okay. Paul's fourteen epistles found in our present New Testament were written to members of the church who already had some knowledge of the gospel. They are not evangelistic, rather they're regulatory in nature. And I feel like someone brought that up before. It was maybe John. And this is something I found fascinating that I did not know. The arrangement is neither chronological, geographical, nor alphabetical, but by length, in descending order from the longest, which is Romans, to the shortest, which is Philemon. Which, I mean, to me, that's kind of crazy to put it in that order.
0: Yeah, let's put them in order of
2: length. (laughs) This (laughs) is the case except with the epistle to the Hebrews, which was placed last because some have questioned whether or not it was written by Paul. And this is all from the Bible dictionary, by the way. The dating and chronological grouping of the epistles as presented below, which I'll talk about in a second, is approximate, but it does seem consistent with the facts that are known. So an advantage to study the epistles in chronological order is that the reader sees the differences in the types of problems the church encountered as the years passed and the circumstances changed. That early membership was mostly Jewish and problems included questions about the law of Moses. That later when the Gentile membership had increased, problems involved items of Greek philosophy. Early persecution was from the Jews, (laughs) right? Later persecution came from the Roman government, but these things were visible in the epistles, not by sharp distinction, but by the gradual shift. And I think that's something that's interesting. And so looking chronologically, it would start with 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which was AD 50-51, and then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans. Then the next group is Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and then Hebrews, and then Titus, and 1st and 2nd Timothy. So just looking at the groups like that chronologically, it's kind of interesting to look at that. So first and second Corinthians and Galatians and Romans were written between AD 55 and 56. First Corinthian was written toward the end of Paul's three year stay at Ephesus, which is interesting to me because I always used to think, well, he wrote it because he was in Corinth and he did not for obvious reasons. <laughs> and then Galatians was probably written during his journey through Macedonia. And then the Romans, he wrote from Corinth. So, Paul
0: is all over the known world, bringing up these new branches of the church, raising up these new branches, moving on, raising up more new branches, and then writing to his old branches to try to keep them headed in the right direction. Is that right?
2: Yeah. And when you think about that, that just seems overwhelming to me, an overwhelming task (laughs) for one person, for one missionary to do. Yeah.
0: John, you opened a branch of the church once. That had to be overwhelming.
1: Wow. I, that's cool. You remember that. I will never forget the day the mission van drove off and I was standing there with elder Steve Lewis and they had just rented us a house with the living room. We could hold church in instead of an apartment. They got some pews and just said, bye-bye. What an adventure. Raised up a was. branch. Yeah.
0: And Paul's doing it. It sounds like almost weekly, starting these new branches yeah. of the church,
1: wherever he goes. And Paul is so uniquely qualified. He could speak languages. I know that would touch you, huh, Teresa? He had different languages, and he knew different cultures, and he was able to talk to anybody.
2: He could. And it's talking about that with the different languages and cultures. At the time, Corinth was the meeting place of many nationalities. It was the main current of trade, float through there between Asia and Western Europe.
0: If I remember right, it's on a small strip of land where you can. It's an isthmus. You can cut off a bunch of time. (laughs) You would stop your boat and then you would maybe unload it, take everything to the other side, going through Corinth, and then your boat would go, go around and pick you up on the other side, or there'd be a new boat there to pick you up.
1: Yeah, it's called the, oh, correct me, deal, deal close. There was a Greek name for this road. They wanted to build a canal. What was it? Six kilometers. Just didn't have the equipment to be able to do it back then, but it saved like a 200 miles or something going around. When I was there, I joked with my group that this is where the saying came from that we wish you a Merry Isthmus <laughs> and a Happy New Pier because on the <laughs> other side, they would unload the yeah, they had the same That's good, yeah. It was That's, like,
0: that yeah. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> so it's on this little narrow stretch of land where you can, a lot of people are coming through.
2: Yeah, and lots of trade going on. So lots of languages, lots of cultures. Paul's first visit lasted nearly two years, and his converts were mainly Greeks. And about the Greeks at that time, they were gifted with a keen sense of the joys of physical existence, a passion for freedom, and a genius for rhetoric and logic. So, when we think back to the famous Greeks that we know, but at the same time, it was reared in the midst of the grossest moral correction, undisciplined, and self-conceited types of things that were going on there, too. So, you kind of had this dichotomy there, which was really hard to work with for Paul.
1: So, you wouldn't say the field was ripe already to harvest, or maybe you would. It it would (laughs) just be, they really need the gospel
2: here type of a thing.
0: John, I was going to say, so it's Full of nationalities, full of languages, and full of sin. Is that what you're telling me, Teresa?
2: (laughs) Yes, very much so.
0: (laughs) Okay. And here Paul shows up and has some success, right?
2: He has great success, yeah. There were people who were humble enough to listen to him and who were ready.
0: Then he leaves there. He's there for, you said, almost two years. And then he leaves there and he goes on to do more of his work. And somehow he gets word that things are not going well in Corinth.
2: Yeah, and don't you kind of wonder about that, how he found out? I mean, I know there are a lot of possible ways, but, and how disheartening that would be.
0: He says in verse 11, It hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So there was a tattletale. Somebody in there. (laughs) Let Paul know things are not going well. It's good
2: that he knew, so then he could try and reach out and help them. That's the other really important part. And you bring up something interesting too. The way that like in looking at an analysis of first Corinthians one through seven, the very first part is like his greeting and giving of thanks for in verses one through nine. And then he rebukes the church for the lack of unity.
0: <laughs> He's like, I love you <laughs> yeah. so much. You're the best. <laughs> and this is what's going on. <laughs> and now here's the problem. Yeah. And
2: the spirit of partisanship and insubordination, then the case of impurity in chapter five and six, and then lawsuits. Then the inquiries made by them about marriage in seven, but that's just kind of like an overview of looking at it. Chapter one, the first few verses, true saints are perfectly unified in the same mind and in the same judgment. Just going off of that in the heading, Paul was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sophanes, our brother. I promise I practiced that before I came on. Under the Church of God, (laughs) which is at Corinth, to tell them that they're sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints with all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom we were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I just love, can you even imagine receiving that in a letter? I think we had a high council speaker yesterday in sacrament meeting, and he brings the love of the stake presidency. Just, I mean, you got to love that. And then you think about area presidencies when they speak, general authorities who speak, and then when the prophet and apostles speak, they bring the greetings that make you feel like they really know you and care about you, but they bring love from the Savior, really. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here.
0: I love his introductions. We've seen this in a couple other letters. Oh, Yeah. It seems in every letter, he wants to begin with how the good that they're doing and the good people that they are.
2: I mean, we can take a lesson from that even too. We think about when we try to be peacemakers and President Nelson's most recent talk and what it takes to be able to do that, to be united, to be peacemakers.
1: Yeah. Verse 10, no divisions, be of the same mind, same judgment. It's just that, that ideal of Zion. It sounds like that same, same heart, same mind. and that. I mean, that's lofty. That's hard to do, but that doesn't mean we don't strive for it and we don't mention it. We're we're trying to get to that point where there's no division, same mind, same judgment.
0: Hmm. In the God's Word translation of verse three, it says, Good will and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are yours. That's a way to start a letter.
1: Uh, Yeah, I like the bumper sticker language, eyes on Jesus. And Paul always starts his letters like that. Hey, what are you looking at? Eyes on Jesus, you guys. I feel like the Doctrine and Covenants does that. Your eyes have been upon Joseph. Come on, you guys. Eyes on Jesus. That's where you keep your eyes.
0: Oh, yeah. I remember that, John. Your eyes have been upon him.
1: Yeah. And his imperfections you've known and his language you've known. Your your eyes are in the wrong place. Eyes on Jesus. And Paul starts all of his letters like that, I think.
0: Yeah. It kind of starts out with, Teresa, wouldn't you say? He's kind of beginning with, this is where our focus needs to be. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, we're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to stand blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's every verse.
2: Yeah. So 10, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you.
0: Ten verses in, he's like, let's address some issues.
2: And in the manual, it says under this first section, we don't know all the details about the lack of unity among the Corinthian saints, but we do know about lack of unity in our own relationships. And then think of a relationship in your life that could benefit from more unity.
0: That's something that's big for us here on Follow Him, Teresa. Yes, let's learn about these people in the past, but... Help me with my relationships today. Help me with my Mm -hmm. relationships, my children, my wife, my ward members,
1: my challenges today.
0: Yeah. Let's not shy away from that. Right. As I read this, looking forward to our, our recording today, it seems like they're dividing by who taught them the gospel or who baptized them or who they're looking at as their leader. Verse 12 Every one of you is saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. We know he is another missionary.
1: I am of Cephas, which is Peter. I am of Christ. Yeah. Are you focusing on who first taught you or who baptized you other than eyes on Jesus? It's that sort of a thing. He's be careful about that. That's what I'm getting.
0: Yeah. Teresa, do you feel like that's what's happening there? I don't see that a lot happening today, of course, but.
2: <laughs> in 15 2 should say that I had baptized in my own name. I mean, it goes right along with that. But yeah, I remember when I was on my mission, I. You try to involve members and try to have members baptize and confirm, and members help with the teaching, and members help with the fellowshipping before they even were baptized so it wasn't something that was tied to the missionary.
0: I can see in other translations of the Bible, it's when we say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, kind of what they're saying is, I follow Paul, or I belong to Paul, I follow Paul. And then I see in verse 13, this question, is Christ divided? Meaning would would Christ like this, this division among his missionaries, his leaders, those saying, oh, that's my leader. No, well, that's my leader. Well, that's my leader.
2: In 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. I mean, it's like, it's like, this <laughs> is, yeah, listen to this. Okay. It's like, this is what's going on. It's like, you're, you are of Christ. You belong to Christ. You follow Christ instead of me or anyone else.
0: Yeah. He cuts that apart in one verse. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? <laughs> Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Like John already knows this. I have an affinity to President Hinckley because he was the prophet of my youth. He seemed like a, a almost a grandfather to me. Some of his talks came at the most crucial periods of my of my life, decision making times of my life. I can see myself kind of saying that. Well, I am of Gordon B. Hinckley. <laughs> yeah, I'm a product. I'm a product of President Hinckley, and Paul might say. Was President Hinckley crucified for you? No, it was Christ.
1: Our friend, Dr. Robert L. Millett, a friend of the podcast who's been on a couple of times, he has a book called Becoming New that's all about the epistles of Paul. This is what he said. Language like, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and appropriately, I am of Christ, suggests that different factions or schisms had developed. The situation might be analogous to a group of Latter-day Saints sitting around a table and expressing who their favorite general authorities are although the case with the Corinthian saints was much more serious than that. Let us suppose that certain members of the restored church choose to study and teach and focus solely on the words of their particular champion. There are the David O. McKay saints, the Joseph Fielding Smith members, the Marion D. Hanks followers, and the Bruce R. McConkie fans, the Boyd K. Packer crowd, and the Thomas S. Monson collection. Each of these (laughs) chosen servants is different in his own way, all gifted, powerful, and effective witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ each appealing to different kinds of Latter day Saints. What I like here is he said, Well, there's something to be said for that. There's people that that resonate with us, and I'm grateful for that. But he says this is more serious because let us suppose that certain members chose to study and teach and focus solely on the words of their particular champion. And that's where Paul is, Whoa, 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 that's the eyes on Jesus idea. Isn't it? that's what I get from that?
2: I love that from the book. I had a similar thought to that. David O. McKay was the prophet when I was born. So he's always been like the prophet. I'm with you, Hank. I remember when President Hinckley passed away too, that it was like, oh, are you kidding me? And then when President Monson, you know, you're just like, what? It's interesting to look at it like that. Everybody thinks differently, has different backgrounds, different ways of learning. And that's where I think it's important. It's okay to be like drawn to someone's type of teaching, type of writing. But the whole purpose is to be of Christ.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's who they are all pointing us to. And that's what's so beautiful about it is they're all disciples of Christ that are pointing us that way.
0: Paul says in verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he's saying, look, I know some of you are, hey, I was baptized by this guy. I was baptized by this guy. That's not the crucial point. The point is, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So John and Teresa, I hear him saying, baptism is important and who you were baptized by Great, but the cross is the important piece.
1: Yeah, this is what I, I love about Paul. He keeps going back to the, that eyes on Jesus message, even in his introductions and in his greetings. That's where the power is, and you'll notice him going back and forth, and kind of comparing the wisdom of men and the power of God and which one he wants us to focus on. Like in verse 22, the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And that's where the power is. Uh, Don't ever get your eyes off of the atonement, off the cross, as Paul will put it. And unto the Jews, that's a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. And if I understand right, the idea that a God could be crucified and condemned like a criminal just seems so foolish to the Greeks. So maybe that's where he's going with that, but that's where the power is. Um, and that's why it's so fun to see Paul preach to get us back to eyes on Jesus. And this man has God raised from the dead as he taught in, in Mars Hill.
0: Before we leave this idea, Teresa, tell us more about being perfectly joined together no divisions among you. He says there's contentions among you. Uh, This seems to be a major point of Paul that, like John has said, they're taking their eyes off of Christ and are now creating these factions among themselves.
2: And I think I'd like to back up a little bit to talk about language and culture and the difference, customs and traditions. We've talked just a little bit about how it was back then, but how things are now. And there have been a couple of recent conference talks that I love more than anything. And when I teach the seminar on language and culture, whenever we have general conferences, always in a fall semester, I always have students watch conference and look for things about language and culture. And it's so cute because I got a text from one and she said, I know Dr. Bell's going to love this one by Elder Pino from October 22 this last fall. So I just want to okay. tell and you probably, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I love it so much. He says, we all have custom and traditions that are personal from our family or from the community in which we live. And we hope to keep all those things that align with the principles of the gospel. Edifying customs and traditions are fundamental to our efforts to stay on the covenant path. And those that are an obstacle, we ought to reject. So when we put this in the context, even of the Corinthians at the time, and then he explains a custom is the practice or the frequent and habitual way of thinking for a person, culture, or tradition. Frequently, the things we think and do in a habitual way, we recognize as normal. Then he tells this story that I just can't even stand. I love it so much. My (laughs) wife, Patricia, my beloved wife, loves to drink coconut water and then eat the coconut. During our first visit to Pueblo, Mexico, we went to a place where we bought a coconut. After drinking the water, my wife asked them to cut the coconut and bring her the flesh to eat. When it came, it was reddish that sprinkled it with chili, sweet coconut with chili. That seems strange to us, but later we learned that the strange ones were my wife and I, who did not eat coconut with chili in Mexico. It's not rare. It's very normal. Okay. And I don't know. You guys have spent time in Mexico and there are mangoes with chili. I mean, there are different things that they do put chili on, but I'd never seen it with coconut before and neither had they. So another occasion they were in Brazil, <laughs> they served avocado. They were about to sprinkle salt on it. And the friends said, what are you doing? We already put sugar on the avocado. <laughs> Avocado with sugar? (laughs) That seems so odd. But we learned that the odd ones were my wife and I who did not eat avocado with sugar. In Brazil, avocado sprinkled with sugar is normal. And I mean, and now they eat those things and it's okay. But what is normal for some may be odd for others, depending on their customs and traditions. And so this is what I just think is so interesting. And this is just about little things that you would eat like food items, the way food is treated in two different countries that these Elder Pino and his wife thought were a little bit different and something that they'd never really seen before. This is basic. This isn't really about Christ, but it really is, because it's one of the things that can cause factions. And we just sometimes we look at people and think, oh, they put chili on coconut. That is so weird. I totally can't be friends with them. Or I can't, we don't believe the same thing or that type of a thing. And so his examples were a really good start to look at this. And he quotes President Nelson in his talk, A New Normal from October 2020. Today, we often hear about a new normal. If you really want to embrace a new normal, I invite you to turn your heart, mind, and soul increasingly to our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let that be your new normal. So when we look at that in the context of even just eating avocados with sugar and coconut with chili. It's interesting because those are things that have really don't have anything to do with salvation, eternal life, Christ, but something like that could lead to divisions.
0: Teresa, if divisions can come up with something as simple (laughs) as food, how do we overcome this? Because I, I would think the adversary is trying to create division after division after division any way possible. And we are falling right into that trap sometimes.
2: And we all do. I shouldn't say all because I'm sure there's someone out there who doesn't. But when I think about the talk, Love Your Enemies by President Oaks in October 2020, this was one that got me. I loved it so much because he talks about political differences. And that was a huge time. It still is going on where people have distinct views.
0: I've never heard of that. John, have you ever heard (laughs) of that? Of people being divided by politics? They (laughs) They are? (laughs) This is news to me. I'm excited to learn more about this.
2: When President Nelson talked about his, in his peacemakers talk, peacemakers needed, I guess, he talked about that too. The very thing. And I just, it's, if someone posts something on social media, you don't have to be mean about it, but you don't also have to necessarily like it, but it's to try to understand where they're coming from, why they believe they do. And you don't have to support them or their political candidate, but it's getting past that on many college university campuses. There are. Differences of opinions. Politically is one of them. Ways of teaching and learning are different. And there are people who are far right, far left, and have a hard time even talking with other people who have a different political persuasion or different belief, to the point where I've seen people not even talk to each other. I've been at several different universities, and there, it seems like in every department, there are at least two people who cannot talk to each other, refuse to talk to each other for whatever their problems are. And I just find it awful. To me, that's something that needs to be bridged. It needs to, it needs to change. You asked something about how we can do, how we can overcome this. And I don't know if there's an answer. Like, I know it's through Christ. I know it's through the atonement. I know that everything can be forgiven. I know that we can get along with everybody, but it's how to do it. I've had discussions with friends about this before too, is how to do it. And it feels like people are looking for, like, if you'll give me a step by step of this is how you do it, I will do it. But the thing is, that is not what it is. It's a little more difficult than that. It's, some, it's a personal thing that we have to learn for ourselves. And I think it's true, the eyes on Jesus. I love that so much, John. I might use that now every day, all the time. But that's what it is, is if you keep your eyes on Jesus and what the real goal is and what the real context is for everything we should be doing, I think that's what the key is.
1: I had was listening to a talk from a friend, uh, Gaynalyn Condi, and she used that phrase. And I thought, oh, I like that, because I've talked about you know Peter walking on water, and as soon as he looked away, he started to sink. But that, that eyes on Jesus was a good way to put it. I remember a time I was standing in a room in the Philippines with all these other elders. I don't know if it was a district meeting or what, but I looked around the room and just realized I was the only American in the room. And there was an elder from Canada there. There was an elder from New Zealand there. There was an elder from Australia there. There was my companion, a Filipino there. And I just thought, look, at how cool is this? What is the one thing we're all united about? Because we were different. We didn't go to high school together, didn't take seminary. But the one thing we were united about was our our testimony of Christ. I just remember that moment. I think I wrote it in my mission journal one of the three times I wrote. But... (laughs) Just remember thinking what a cool thing that was and how uniting the gospel can be if our eyes are on Jesus.
0: The talk you've been referencing, this peacemakers needed, this was just, what, a couple of months ago, and yet I can put myself back on the couch listening and being just wowed by President Nelson. He says, vulgarity. Fault finding and evil speaking of others are all too common. Too many pundits, politicians, entertainers, and other influences throw insults constantly. I am greatly concerned that so many people seem to believe that it is completely acceptable to condemn, malign, and vilify anyone who does not agree with them. Many seem eager to damage another's reputation with pathetic and pithy barbs. Anger never persuades. Hostility builds no one. Contention never leads to inspired solutions. I bet both of you felt the same way on this talk. One that stood out to me, he said, if if a couple in your ward gets divorced or a young missionary returns home early or a teenager doubts his testimony, they do not need your judgment. They need to experience the pure love of Christ reflected in your words and actions. I would encourage everyone to go back and listen to that entire talk again. It's one that'll uplift you. Do you remember he talked about the the surgeon that threw his scalpel? Yep. Yes. It hit President Nelson yeah. in his forearm, he says. In the middle of his tantrum, he threw his scalpel loaded with germs and it landed in my forearm.
2: Well, and then that's when he decided right then he was never going to be that angry. He was never going to have an outburst like that yeah. or a reaction to something.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And which what a blessing for all of us now.
0: Yeah. You can tell it by just the person that he is. Yeah. We talked about how to do this. I think I've shared this one other time on the podcast. So those of you who listen every time and memorize everything, I have apologized. I doubt there's anyone who does that. But this is from Henry B. Irie. Our hearts knit as one, October, 2008. It's a little long, so bear with me here. He said, that leads to another principle of unity. It is to speak well of each other. Think of the last time you were asked what you thought about how someone else was doing in your family or in the church. It's happened to me more than once in the past week. Now, there are times we must judge others. Sometimes we are required to pronounce such judgments. But more often, we can make a choice. For instance, suppose someone asks you what you think of the new bishop. As we get better and better at forging unity, we will think of a scripture when we hear that question. And now, my brethren, seeing that you know the light by which you may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that you do not judge wrongfully. For that with that same judgment, which ye judge, ye shall be judged. Realizing, this is back to President Eyring, realizing that you see others in an imperfect light will make you likely to be a little more generous in what you say. In addition to that scripture, you might remember your mother saying, mine did, if you can't say anything good about a person, don't say anything at all. That will help you look for what is best in the bishop's performance and character. The Savior, as your loving judge, will surely do that as he judges your performance and mine. The scripture, what you heard from your mother, all these will lead you to describe what is best in the bishop's performance and his good intent. And then this promise. I can promise you a feeling of peace and joy when you speak generously of others in the light of Christ. Isn't that great? I can promise you a feeling of peace and joy when you speak generously of others in the light of Christ. And since Teresa and I have the same bishop, we better do a shout out to our good Bishop Nuttall. We love you, Bishop. You're doing a great
2: job. We do. He is so great. And he has his eyes on Jesus. Yeah. President Nelson, in his talk, after what you quoted, brothers and sisters, we can literally change the world one person and one interaction at a time. How? By modeling how to manage differences of opinion with mutual respect and dignified dialogue. Differences of opinion are a part of life. I work every day with dedicated servants of the Lord who do not always see an issue the same way. They know I want to hear their ideas and honest feelings about everything we discuss, especially sensitive issues. And he was talking about his counselors, President Oaks and President Iring. And to me, that was something I was blown away. I thought that was so spectacular that even the first presidency has different and honest feelings and ideas about things, but they're able to share it in a way that is beneficial for everybody. And then they end up becoming unified however it works out. This whole talk, when it was on, I had out my little notebook. I was trying to write down every word he said, and I just was laughing to myself because I knew it was going to be, I was going to be able to read it like the next day or two days after, but it was like, it wasn't soon enough. I wanted to have all of it to go over it. Every word from that talk, I just thought this could seriously change the world if people would read this and take it to heart and heed it.
1: Yeah. I would just say again that, uh, that's, that uh, I want to say Doctrine of Covenants section 38, I think it's verse 27. Be one, and if you're not one, you're not mine, and how the options are not good. And I've often felt like if Satan's going to get us, it's, of course, he's going to try from the outside in. But if he can get us from the inside, if he can create divisions on the inside, that those are the really tough ones. So to me, that is the bigger issue that if we have the unity, we have, we have allowed the spirit in and the power of God into all that we're doing. That, that's just how he starts here. You can have that power of God with you if there's no divisions.
0: Mm. Third Nephi chapter 11, both of you will remember this, Jesus speaking to the Nephites. This is his first day with them, his first few moments, hours with them. For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger, one with another.
2: All right. So in October, 2020, it felt like that was a good general conference for talking about unity and language and culture. And Elder Cook gave the talk, Hearts Knit Together in Righteousness and Unity. And he tells a story that really is, to me, is a really great example of this. He said, as a young man not of our faith, General Thomas L. Kane assisted and defended the saints as they were required to flee Nauvoo. He was an advocate for the church for many years. In 1872, General Kane and his talented wife, Elizabeth Wood Kane, and their two sons traveled from their home in Pennsylvania to Salt Lake City. They accompanied Brigham Young and his associates on a trek south to St. George, Utah. Elizabeth approached her first visit to Utah with reservations about the women. She was surprised by some of the things she learned. For instance, she found that any career by which a woman could earn a living was open to them in Utah. She also found church members were kind and understanding with respect to Native Americans. And how I mean, that paragraph alone is enough to make you think (laughs) a lot of things, but the culture was different than outside of Utah. During the trip, they stayed in Fillmore at the home of Thomas R. Matilda Robinson King. Elizabeth wrote that as Matilda was preparing a meal for President Young and his company, five American Indians came into the room. Although uninvited, it was clear they expected to join the company. Sister King spoke to them in their dialect. They sat down with their blankets with a pleasant look on their faces. Elizabeth asked one of the King children, what did your mother say to them? Matilda's son's reply was, she said, these strangers came first and I've only cooked enough for them, but your meal is on the fire cooking now. I will call you as soon as it's ready. Elizabeth asked, will she really do that or just give them scraps at the kitchen door? Matilda's son answered, mother will serve them just as she does you and give them a place at her table. So she did. They ate with perfect propriety. Elizabeth explained that this hostess rose 100% in her opinion. Unity is enhanced when people are treated with dignity and respect, even though they are different in outward characteristics. And Something. There are a few remarkable things about this, but one is the attitude toward the American Indians at the time in the area was not necessarily positive, and we don't really have to get into that, but there were definite differences between the Utah members of the church and the American Indians. The fact that she knew their dialect, which, I mean, I don't know what it was, but there's a good chance it wasn't even written down. Like, she couldn't have just studied it from a book or anything, but that she cared enough to have that relationship and to know how to speak to them. I just, to me, that is just something that's remarkable. I could talk about language things for a long time, but another really important thing from that is that we're given the promise that people can hear the gospel in their own tongue. So that right there, I mean, it just shows that she's already trying to build relationships, maybe never to share the gospel, but it's just something that's really important for us to think about.
0: Yeah, I want to learn other people's language. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean english spanish german it can mean the way they think the way they talk if i really try to see life from their point of view i can perhaps learn their language
2: that's true although i should say that elder uchdorf did refer to german as a celestial language
1: oh, once at okay. a general conference
2: well. before talk i think he even said it in german so not everybody caught no, it didn't. but i mean i'm just saying just put that in your notes of something to read or okay, to learn yeah
0: I'll throw that in <laughs> do you think that's why Paul, in the second half of this first chapter, he seems to be saying, "I don't want you contending with one another because I'm not using the wisdom of the world and the wise people of the world to share the gospel, and that's one of the purposes is I'm going to put that idea that you need to contend about a message. I'm going to put that away by using. What does he call them? The weak things, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised. That's who God has chosen. That's one of my favorite moments in the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord says, "I'm going to use you, Joseph, to show that I can do anything with anyone." <laughs> He's almost like it's kind of a veiled, like, "Well, but I'm going to use the weak things of the earth." So it seems to me. Am I saying that right? Either of you that Paul says in the second half of this first chapter, this is why we're using the simple people of the earth. We're going to get away from the idea that contending in intelligence is the way to truth.
2: I think so. Definitely. I remember there was a time on my mission where there was an elder who hadn't been out very long and his German left a little bit to be desired. And we were at a street display talking to people and someone came up and um, started, you know, kind of bashing with them a little bit. And he, I don't know that he could have even done it in English. I'm not very good at debating in English either. But in German, it was never going to happen. He just stopped and bore a simple testimony of the Savior. And the person just was stunned. They couldn't say anything. But it just, that kind of helped me see is it's, there's this, spiritual missionary who's ready to serve, ready to preach the word and to share the gospel. And I mean, to this other man, he looked like he doesn't even speak German. He's probably 18, 19 years old, you know, kind of thing. It's like, what could he possibly tell me? But him just bearing his testimony, the spirit poured in so strong and testified to that man. And he was stunned. It's not about intelligence. It's not about intellectual, you know, being intellectual. It's not about any of that. And I think that's something that's really important in this section.
1: Yeah, it's the man's wisdom compared to the power of God. That's, and the latter is going to win every time.
0: <laughs> yeah. This is the God's Word translation for 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. <laughs> God purposely chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise. And he chose that what the world considers weak in order to shame the powerful. So Paul might be saying something about himself. He might be saying something about us, John, or anyone else who God uses to, to spread the gospel. I purposely use the ones that you wouldn't think could do it in doing my work.
1: Mm-hmm. The verse that I think you were referring to, Hank, is, it the, is right there in the footnotes in the bottom corner. If you're looking at old fashioned printed scriptures, like I've got section 35 verse 14. Is that the one you're talking about? I can't remember. Yeah. I what call is it? I call upon the weak things of the world, those that are unlearned and despised, to thrash, or I think it says thresh the nations by the power of my spirit, and their arm shall be my arm, and I will be their shield and their buckler, and they shall fight manfully for me, yeah. and their enemies shall be under their feet. It's like this whoa type of a verse. And boy, when you think about it, here's a farm boy from upstate New York. Maybe that's we meant by the weak things of the world.
0: I like how this chapter comes together. The way he begins focusing on Christ, saying, you've got to get rid of these mm. divisions and be humble enough to allow the weak things of the world to teach you, right? To guide you. And then he finishes with Christ in verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He circles all the way back back around, it seems, Teresa, back to Christ.
2: Well, for chapter two, I think one of the main important topics is, and this is directly from Come Follow Me for Individuals and Families, I need the Holy Ghost in order to understand the things of God. And just readings directly from the manual, I just really like examples like this. It helps me really a lot. I mean, if you want to learn more about something like automotive mechanics or medieval architecture, how would you do it? According to 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16, how is learning the things of God different from learning the things of man? Why must we have the Holy Ghost in order to understand the things of God? So maybe we should look at those verses and then we can talk about the questions here. What do you feel you should do to understand spiritually things more fully? And how could Paul's words help someone who's struggling with his or her testimony?
0: Paul says, as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man The things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. I should throw in that JST there, except He has the Spirit of God. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's beautiful language. Someone tell me what it all means.
2: I think John should take the first stab at that. (laughs)
0: Oh
1: Well, (laughs) I was really looking forward to this chapter because... My top 10 scriptures fluctuate like the AP top 25 college football. But 1 <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Corinthians 2.9 has always been one of my favorites. And it's kind of like saying, you have no idea. You can't even imagine it. Whatever you think God has prepared for them that love him, the best you can possibly imagine, it's better. And that's how I always love to read that in. So that's one of my very favorite verses. And then you can see that one of the footnotes there is section seventy six and talking about the, the things in the next life. How wonderful and beautiful they can they can be. I love he's just giving us a glimpse and it makes me wonder if Paul has seen some of that, you know.
2: It does make you wonder about that. And I kind of I really love that verse too, John. It really does help you take a step back and kind of think of things. And you think we know a lot of great things. We feel the spirit. We have really spiritual experiences. But when you look at "I have not seen, ear have not heard," I mean that you just think I can't even. We can't even imagine what that probably means. But it does make you think about Paul and what he knew and what he'd experienced. I'd imagine some of it. Just
1: his, his testimony that listen, God wants to give us everything, and that's why it's a very exciting, fills you with anticipation type verse. What has God prepared for them that love him? It just makes us think too, what does it mean to love God and how do I move forward that way?
2: There's a primary song, the one, The Holy Ghost. It's number 105. And it. I thought about this a lot. The words in it are just really remarkable. And I'm just going to read that really. It's short. I won't sing. I'll just read. And when Christ was on the earth, he promised mm-hmm. he would send the Holy Ghost to comfort us, our true eternal friend. The Holy Spirit whispers with a still small voice. He testifies of God in Christ and makes our hearts rejoice. And then the second verse, and when we are confirmed by sacred priesthood power, the Holy Ghost is given to us to guide us every hour. Oh, may I always listen to that still small voice and with his light, I'll do what's right each time I make a choice. This song made a big impact on me when my son got baptized. He was eight so 12 years ago now that was one of the songs that he chose for the congregation to sing and it's really great doctrine to me it's very simple but explains everything well and so when we were just talking about this and looking in 1st Corinthians chapter 2 and about how that we need the holy ghost or we can't understand the things of god and it kind of goes along with what we were talking about before too the wisdom in god and how you don't have to be learned to be able to share the gospel or to be able to understand the word of God. But this, when I was studying this, it just made me think of that primary song. And it's, it's basic, but it's all true.
0: Excellent. John, you focused in on verse nine. I want to focus in on verse 14. Teresa just mentioned it. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. He can't know them because they are spiritually discerned. What does that verse mean to both of you?
1: I keep noticing that word receiveth. I think it means accept. Sometimes I think he who received seed among thorns, it sounds like people, like a wedding reception, we receive guests. When we confer the gift of the Holy Ghost, we say receive the Holy Ghost. It's a let it in, allow it in. And I think the natural man doesn't receive, doesn't want to. It sounds like sometimes when I see it, I think natural man doesn't want to accept the things of God. And I always think of Alma's, awesome phrase in alma 32 if you will give place that the word may be planted in your heart and receiving seems to to give place to willfully suspend disbelief for a second can i and receive it and and let that work in you as alma might say sorry i love that chapter but the natural man doesn't even want to do that doesn't even want to give place he won't receive anything and that's why we don't want to be that that person
2: makes me think of, you know, the scriptures in the Book of Mormon and it's also the parables. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, because they can't. They don't have the Holy Ghost. They don't have the Spirit. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And it just, if people are not in the right frame of mind and do not have the Spirit, they really cannot understand the things of God, no matter how they're presented.
0: Hmm. No matter how they're presented. That's interesting. It's something that seems so obvious to me, a gospel truth that seems so obvious, I've been struck by how to others, it just seems like pure foolishness. But to me, it just seems so obvious. And I've just seen verse 14 kind of play out in my own life, even though it's, it's difficult to articulate. I've
1: been able to see it. Hank, I, I love that idea that we think and perceive everything differently when we have the Spirit of the Lord with us. And each other. So one of my favorite statements of the prophet Joseph Smith, he said, The power and glory of godliness is spread out on a broad principle to throw out the mantle of charity. God does not look on sin with allowance. Okay, we all know that. But when men have sinned, there must be allowance made for them. The nearer we get to our heavenly father, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we want to take them upon our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. I just think we look at each other differently when we have the the spirit of the Lord. And we kind of realize, wow, we're all in this together and we're all struggling and we've all got our problems. But you keep working on yours and I'll keep working on mine. And let's love each other and do the best we can moving forward. You know, I love that statement. We look differently on people. We look with compassion on perishing souls.
0: That's great, John. Brigham Young said, he he was talking about the gospel. And he says, how can we understand it? Meaning the gospel. Oh, we have nothing to do but to humble ourselves and get the spirit of the Lord by being born of water and of the spirit. Then we can enter into it. How is it if we are not born of the spirit? Can the natural man behold the things of God? He cannot, for they are spiritually discerned spiritually by the Spirit of the Lord Almighty. And if we have not His Spirit within us, we cannot understand the things of God. But the most simple thing in the world to understand is the work of the Lord. What shall we do? Divest ourselves of the great big Mr. I. Let him fall at the feet of good sound reason. What next? Humble ourselves before the Lord and receive the truth as He has revealed it. Then we will be born of the Spirit. And he goes on, then you can begin to understand. Reminds me of when they are learned. They think they are wise. They think they are wise.
1: It's 2 Nephi 9. I I like to call it the O's and Woes chapter. Because after Jacob does all the O, the greatness of God, O, the goodness of God, O, the great plan of our God. Then he goes to some woes. But this is still an O. Verse 28, oh, the cunning plan of the evil one. Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise. Teresa, anything on that? I think he covered it really well. It's interesting that I feel like this theme is of Paul's wisdom of men and the power of God and going back and forth on those two. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've seen it. And Teresa,
0: you might comment on this. Just in my own experience in academia, anything that is spiritual or supernatural, you might say, is seen as so foolish that it's almost laughable.
2: It is very true. And we do see that all the time. It feels like that there is a general, I don't know, consensus might be strong, but in academia that you can't have spiritual with scientific. If something that you can't prove empirically, like you said, is foolishness. Like, and why would you believe that? Why would you even think about that? If you can't prove something empirically.
0: In some circles, and I I don't want to impugn every academic, but there does (laughs) seem to be academic arrogance when you start to think, I know more to believe those, whatever you might say. It's interesting. This is just a side note, but it's interesting how many religion professors have to walk that line. Do you remember uh, Carrie Mühlstein told us, John, as an Egyptologist, that he was going to write a paper on the book of Abraham. And he said, I knew my academic career was over as soon as I submitted this paper, Mm. right? And he said, my wife and I pushed submit together (laughs) because he had won UCLA's top dissertation. He got the number one dissertation of the year in Egyptology, and it was all going to come crashing down because he was going to defend the book of Abraham.
2: That is an
1: amazing story. Please join us for part two of this podcast.